Thanks, Chad. I appreciated the uh, many thoughts and application. I think my favorite line was when Chad said that wind was not him. <laughs> he, he seemed really, really quickly defensive there. I don't... <laughs> In uh, another ministry, um, years ago, I, I counseled a man that was um, sinning by viewing pornography. So he came to me on his own, and we started meeting on a weekly basis. Frankly, it was kind of unusual that he, that he came on his own. Uh, most men don't get help until they're forced to. Um, and the guys that try to solve this sin on their own, well, they, they don't. I think it's actually God's intention that that has to be brought out into the light before um, they have any, any success. Um, it might have been our second or third meeting, uh, and I, I turned around, <clears throat> and he was in my office. <laughs> and I, I thought it was unusual, because normally the church receptionist would call me and tell me someone was there to, to see me, the way the offices were set up there at this ministry. Um, you had to kind of walk past the church receptionist, and then all the, there was a hallway with all the pastoral offices down it. Um, and so then, you know, she would normally call me and then I'd come down the hallway and greet whoever was there and then we would walk back to my office. So he kind of caught me by surprise. And I don't know if it was at the end of that session or if he did it a second time and I, and I figured out what was going on. Either way, I finally asked him, I said, hey, did you, did you stop at the front desk? And he, and he told me he hadn't. And I asked him why. Now, rhetorical question for you. Okay, you don't have to shout out an answer here or anything, but, but can you guess why he might not have stopped at the front desk? Don't, don't have to answer, just think in your head what might his answer have been. Now mind you, the receptionist had no idea why he was meeting with me. I, I met with lots of people for various reasons. I was the counseling pastor there, but I, I was also in charge of other ministries, and so I had meetings with people all the time. Not all of them were for counseling. She didn't know. Um, but he thought she might know, and he didn't want her to think that he was there for counseling. So I guess how I handled that. Again, rhetorical question. Um, this might not have been the way you would have handled it, but I told him that from then on, he needed to stop at the front desk like everyone else. And then I explained to him that his desire to hide was part of the reason he struggled with pornography. He couldn't get victory because he wouldn't bring it out into the light. He was ashamed of it. He didn't want anyone else to know that he was being counseled because they might guess why he was being counseled. Now, that guy was not unusual. He's actually like all of us. We don't like being honest about who we really are. We would rather struggle privately with sin than potentially be embarrassed by getting help. We're going to talk about repentance over the next four mornings. I hope this is a, as a help to you. Um, repentance is necessary for salvation, but it's also necessary for sanctification. So I want to spend our time together talking about repentance. I, I think it will be helpful to, to all of us, to you and to me. This is good for me. On October 31st, 1517, so just a few years ago, um, Martin Luther 
hammered his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, most of us know that this act was important for the Reformation. What most of us don't know is what any of those 95 theses were. So let me read the first three. He had 95. Let me read the first three of them. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Of course, you know, Martin Luther was fighting against um, Catholic theology. Number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. And of course, by that, he's talking about killing the sin instinct in us. And I think this really holds up well for being over 500 years old. A life of repentance. It'd be great if God would grant all of us that. Now, the way I'd like to do this is I'd like to, I, I would like to ask questions where you guys, are, where you guys do answer them. Um, I have a couple things working against me here. One is these lights are super bright, so I, I have a hard time seeing people. Um, the second thing is, <laughs> that, and that was quick. It was like the Holy Spirit, just bam, that was, or, or it was Noah, I'm not sure which, but. Um, the other one is I've reached that stage in life where I struggle with my hearing a little bit. So um, you might have to speak up a little loud, uh, louder than, than uh, you would otherwise. So let me, let me ask, let's just start what would be important elements of a definition of repentance? So you don't have to have a fully you know, phrased definition of repentance, but when you think of the word repentance, we find it in scripture, what, what do you think that means? What, what, what are some elements of a definition, if we were to try to work together as a group to come up with a definition of repentance, what would be some important elements that we would want, um, that we would say have to be part of that if it's, if it's true biblical repentance? So this is where you guys get to help me out here. Who would like to uh, start by telling me something that you think would be part of definition? Yes. Okay, saying the same thing about it that God says and then turning from it. Okay, good. So we've got, we've got saying the same thing and also turning. Good, good. Yes. Humility. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't, if you're proudly repentant, that's, those two words don't go together, do they? I mean, you can't, I don't, you know, I don't think you can maintain your pride if you're actually repentant. That's good. Excellent. Other, I saw some other hands here. Yes. A willing heart. Okay, good. Good. Right here. Uh, okay, this, I'm sorry. I warned you about the bad hearing, so. Uh, spiritual sorrow. Good, good. Thank you. Yes, back there. Um, not, really, not the fact that you're sorry that you got caught, but you're sorry that you Oh, man. Yes, see, that's, that's a really good distinction that we're going to talk about. That is excellent. Yeah, because it's easy for us. Like I said, I can be embarrassed about my sin because you know about it, right? That's embarrassing, and I can have no Godward orientation in that. I'm just concerned about what's happening here that you might know about my sin. That's, that's, that's a really good distinction. Good. Any other thoughts on this? Yes. Change of mind. Good. Yep. Yep. Over here. Change of action. Yep. Yep. Good. 
Yeah, okay, we're going to talk about that in like five minutes, actually. That's, that's really, actually, maybe 30 seconds. We'll see. That's, that's excellent. Not trying to justify it. Good, good. So we're, I, I, um, uh, the, the word used often in the New Testament is the word metanoia. You probably know that. Um, it means, from, from one um, Greek dictionary, to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. This same Greek dictionary goes on to say this, though in English a focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin, the emphasis in metanoeo and metanoia seems to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should both think and act, whether the focus is upon attitude or behavior varies somewhat in different contexts. So um, what Lou and uh, Knight are saying here is that, uh, this Greek dictionary, that sometimes the focus is on attitude, sometimes it's on behavior, and sometimes it's on both. So I'm gonna read you a passage here and just kind of mentally think, okay, is this one focused on attitude or behavior when it comes to repentance? Luke 3.8, therefore, Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So Christ is speaking, and he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And I think we would say, well, that's probably emphasizing the behavior aspect, right? Acts 26.20 is another passage. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So this passage seems to emphasize both of those, behavior and attitude. Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So to begin, I want to use an outline from another pastor in describing the fruits of repentance. I think this is in your notes there. And the first one, the first fruit of repentance, is the absence of rationalization. So... How is this a symptom of repentance? Well, um, a person that is still excusing his sin is not repentant. But you don't know my background. I, I don't. But I know if we're using that as an excuse for our sin, then I'm not repentant. Now, don't mishear me. Our backgrounds do influence us. That's, that's absolutely the case. Your family, in fact, your family culture and how they handle problems, that has probably affected you how you handle problems. I do premarital counseling, and uh, one of the things I'll ask a couple in one of our first sessions is, I'll ask the, uh, the prospective husband, the prospective wife, um, tell me how your parents handled conflict. And I get all sorts of answers from that. Some of them are refreshingly encouraging, and some of them are surprisingly disappointing. Um, but one of the things I tell them is, because of the way your parents handled conflict, you are likely to be tempted to handle it the same way if it wasn't a biblical way. So our, our backgrounds do affect us. They do influence us. You might have a greater struggle with a particular sin because of your history, specifically the ways that other people have sinned against you. But we have to remember that our past is an influence, can be a strong influence, but it doesn't 
determine our outcome. It doesn't determine our actions. So, absence of rationalization is, is one mark of a fruit of repentance. Second one is genuine sorrow. Genuine sorrow. Um, it's, th this may include tears or it may not. Some people are not cryy people, right? Um, I, I think sometimes as, as guys we feel uncomfortable with that, like in our, in our culture, you know, American culture, we're not supposed to show tears, you're never supposed to, um, but I, I don't know if that's actually biblical, but that does tend to be what our culture is. Um, but so, so genuine sorrow may involve tears, it may not. Um, but but it, it should be about genuine grief in your heart over pleasing over displeasing God. And in future days, we're going to see this in 1 Corinthians 7 and Psalm 51 as we look at those passages as we continue the series. So genuine sorrow is, is a fruit of repentance. Number three, open confession of sin. So, so help me out here. How is this a symptom of repentance? When I say open confession of sin, I mean more than just confessing it to God, confessing it to other people. How is that a symptom of repentance, a good symptom of repentance? Help me out here. Yes. Huh? Okay, you're bringing it to light. You're acknowledging it for what it is. Good. Good. Yes. All right, asking for accountability, good, excellent. That, I mean, that's, that's what you're doing when you're confessing it is, hey, I'm, I'm showing you who I am. Um, please, please help me. Good. Other, other hands? Yes. Yeah, it does show humility, doesn't it? Absolutely. Shows humility. Good. That's a great, and that's a great fruit of repentance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the case with, with too many of our sins, isn't it? That, that the people around us see them with 20-20 vision. That's actually what Matthew 7 through, through 5 says. I can see all of your sins with 20-20 vision, and then I'm myopic when it comes to my own. Um, that's, that's true. So they are already aware of it often, and I'm, I'm um, being honest by admitting it. Good. Any other thoughts on how open confession of sin is a symptom of repentance? Yes. Okay, it opens the way to reconciliation if you sin against someone else. Good, good. All right. I, I, the person that is still trying to hide their sin, that is still concerned about who knows about it, is not repentant. That, that's the whole point of walking in the light in 1 John 1. When you are more concerned about who knows about your sin than you are about displeasing God, you are not repentant. People who are generally repentant don't care who knows. Now, I started this this morning by talking about a a true life story of someone that I counseled one time um, who was uh, you know, sneaking into my office because they didn't want anyone to know. One of the ways I responded to that was one of the, the, one of the homework assignments I gave that person was, hey, you need to go talk to the senior pastor and tell him why you're meeting with me and you need to go and talk. There was another pastor on staff who this guy was involved in that ministry and I said that he needs to know it as well. And I said, so your homework assignment this week is to go tell them why you're being counseled, admit it to them. I said, and I'm going to check up and ask them and make sure that they, you know, that they heard from you. Now, maybe that sounds cruel to you. Um, I, that's certainly not 
I didn't intend it to be cruel. I just know that these things thrive in darkness. They thrive in darkness. And, and being open and confessing my sin is, is really significant for growth. As long as my main concern is who knows about this? Who knows? I, I'm not actually repentant. I'm still trying to salvage a reputation, a reputation that I don't actually deserve, right? Because I'm hiding sin. It's not actually my real reputation. It's a fake one, but I'm trying to salvage that. that that's not a sign of repentance. Number four, restitution. Restitution. When I'm right with God, I actually can't wait to get right with others. Now, um, is restitution always possible? Probably, probably not. In some cases, it's not. I, my dad had a prison ministry when I was growing up, and uh, I remember one time uh, going with my dad to this prison, um, and he was holding a Bible study there. And I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school. This was a very different side of life than, than I experienced in my own family. And one of the guys there, I remember him saying this. I was, I think I was a college student actually. And uh, one of the guys said, yeah, and my dad was talking about how they, you know, if you've sinned, you need to um, be willing to restore that. And this guy was in prison for thievery. And, and he, he said, he said, man, he said, I, I have, you know, burgled so many places. I think that's the right word, burgled. And that, how often do you get to use that word? That is awesome burgled. I have burgled so many places, he said, that I could not even remember them all. And I remember as a kid thinking, man, I, I mean, I stole some money from my dad's, you know, change jar when I was a kid. I shoplifted something from a store um, that I eventually um, went back years later and, and, and made right. I made right the stealing from a change from my dad. I mean, I had like three or four instances of thievery in my life that I could remember. And I'm thinking, how I guess if you make your living off of it, eventually you forget how many times that you've stolen from somebody, from different people. I, it just was, that, that, that you know, kind of blew my mind at that time. It, it, it's restitution sometimes because of the trail of sin behind you is really difficult. But, but the repentant person wants to get right. They want to get right with people. Now, number three was open confession of sin. So I want to expand our understanding of that by looking at Proverbs 28, 13 this morning. So repentance is confession. Proverbs 28, 13. Solomon wrote this proverb and encourages us to admit our sin. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So confession, forsaking, those are necessary in repentance. So, so the opposite of confessing and forsaking is concealing our sin. So let's, let's brainstorm here a little bit. How do we conceal our sin? What are ways that we try to keep our sin hidden? And again, you know, this isn't a personal testimony. So, you know, we're, we're not assuming the worst when you raise your hand here. We're, we're assuming you're talking about the person next to you, not yourself, okay? So it's not, not your own testimony here. But what are ways that we... Um, hide our sin? What are ways that we, that, that we end up hiding our sin? Yes, in the back. We don't, the we don't share the whole truth, okay? Yep, absolutely, good, good. We don't share the whole truth. Huh? 
We blame other people, absolutely, good. It's a way of not owning it, of not confessing it. In the back? Denial, Denial. yep, yep, absolutely. We ignore it, yep, as long as we can. As long as we can keep trying to stick it under the rug, we're gonna do that. We're gonna pretend that there's not you know, a big pile of dirt under that rug that people are tripping over. We're gonna pretend that, we, that it's, as long as we can deny it, we will. That's one way that we hide it. Yes? Oh yeah, comparison, absolutely. Everybody does this. If, I, mean, you, I mean, you've been a parent, you know. I mean, you, you just sometimes you lose it with your kids. You know, I mean, everybody, everybody does that. I mean, that's just, that's just, and so we, we compare ourselves to others and we imagine that that makes us look better. And we, we therefore don't deal with our sin. Scripture, um, I, I, I think there, there are ways that, you know, we're not quick to admit them. We have to have like our arm twisted behind our back before we'll finally admit our sin. Um, we resist accountability when other people want to hold us accountability. Uh, hold us accountable, we, we resist it. We point fingers at other people. We excuse, we rationalize. We especially don't admit it when others point it out. Uh, and sometimes it's the person who points it out that I think is actually part of God's sanctification process for us. In, in my own church, I, um, the pastor, our senior pastor there let me speak a few weeks ago and I, I mentioned an illustration there of uh, I remember when my, I think it was my teenage son, um, I think he was barely a teenager. Um, he's, he's now an adult, um, so this is a long time ago. Um, but he, he, uh, he, he said, Dad, I don't think you're being very nice to Mom right now. And he was right. Man, man, it bugged me that my teenage son was pointing that out. I mean... It's not as if I was quick to confess when my wife pointed it out, but I think sometimes um, we show our lack of repentance because we're not willing to accept correction from whom God has providentially intended it to come from. Who corrected Old Testament Israel? Babylon. Babylon. A wicked country that was far worse than Israel was. And yet, that's who God used. Israel, hey man, if you, had, if you had a more righteous nation correcting us, I think we would have been okay with it, God. That's, that's part of the sanctification process, is that I get to accept correction from people that's humbling. It's humbling for me. It's good for me. We have to own our sin. As long as we pretend that it's someone else's, as long as we're slow to admit it, we will struggle. So, what does it mean in this verse, Proverbs 28, 13, where it says, um, but he who confesses and forsakes him will find compassion. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. What does it mean to not prosper? Solomon is saying that in general, when you hide your sin, you don't have success. Now, certainly that's not always true in a worldly sense. Many people hide their sin and get away with it. Not all murders are solved. Not all embezzlement is discovered. Not all adultery is found out but they never get away with it in front of God. When you hide your sin, you can't prosper spiritually. In fact, your sin separates you from God. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
or Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So Isaiah is saying, there are literally people in Israel who are saying to themselves, I think the problem is God. That's why he's not answering our prayers. It must be he is unable, he's lost power. Uh, it must be that he's deaf, he can't hear anymore. I mean, that, that's how blind they were to their sins, that they literally thought the reason they could not get a hold of God in prayer is because of God, it's his problem. And Isaiah says, no, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When you refuse to confess and forsake your sin, God becomes your foe. That's a terrifying thought. Can you think of Bible characters that didn't get away with their sin? Uh, I think we can start at the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> they didn't get away with their sin. Cain didn't get away with his sin. David did not get away with his sin with Bathsheba. What this verse is saying is that when I have an attitude that says, I must cover myself, I must hide my sin, I won't prosper. I won't be growing at the rate that God wants me to. I'll be struggling with life. What you cover, God is going to uncover. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Luke 12, 2 and 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I think it's interesting that Solomon is the author of Proverbs 28, 13, because where might he have seen this played out? I mean, obviously, um, he was born after the fact, after David's sin with Bathsheba. But you think he might have heard the story? Think he might have, might have um, heard the story how Nathan the prophet came to his dad, King David, and confronted him? David, you know, we, we read it in Scripture, and, you know, we're going through our Bible reading program, and so we imagine that, you know, 30 seconds after he committed sin, Nathan was there at his doorstep, and he confronted him. It's likely at least a year that David was hiding that. Going on with life as if everything was fine. Continuing to do kingly stuff. The alternative, according to this passage, is to confess and forsake our sin. So I have a couple thoughts on here. I, th I think these are in your notes. What does it mean to confess our sin? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. It is better to be specific than general. These are nothing, nothing super notable about what I'm going to say here. It's better to be specific than general. The word used in Proverbs is a word which means primarily to confess sin uh, or to confess. Actually, it can be used to confess God's character works. Um, it's sometimes used to mean praise or give thanks, actually, even. It emphasizes recognition or declaration of a fact. And I think we can learn from this that a specific confession is better than a general one. God, I'm sorry for the wrong I've done is not quite as specific as God, I dishonored your name by using it as a swear word today. 
You see how one is more specific than the other one. Others have recognized the importance of specific confession of sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Uh, again, this is an old document, so you know, pardon the language here. Man ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I love that. To repent of his particular sins particularly. And we would say to repent of your specific sins specifically. That's what we would say. That, that it, a general repentance is not enough. That we should actually dive in, think about this. It goes on to say, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them, he shall find mercy. So he that scandalizes his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. So it says, confess your particular sins particularly. But don't think that private confession of your sins is enough. If you've scandalized your brother, again, this is a language we don't normally use, uh, or, or the Church of Christ, you ought to be willing by either a private meeting or if more people are involved, it needs to be a public meeting where you confess your sin. Proverbs 28.13, I think, is the Old Testament equivalent to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, 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 the word confess in 1 John 1, 9, you, you know this is homologao, which means to acknowledge or to admit. So part of growing in Christ is getting more specific in our confession. If you rarely confess your sin to God, you are not receiving compassion or mercy, as Proverbs 28, 13 says, like you should. If you always confess your sin by calling it pride or selfishness, you're not nearly as specific as you could be. The truth is, um, you know, telling God, telling others that you struggle with pride or selfishness is like, duh. That's like telling people that you breathe. We, yes, all of us struggle with pride and selfishness. You know, theologians for centuries have, have argued which of those is our prime sin um, because they're so common to us. But you and I have specific lusts that are individual. Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. That, that we don't all struggle with the same exact sins in the same exact ways. It's even more clear when James says in, in James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that word, his own, is from the Greek word idios, from which we get our word idiot. It doesn't mean stupid in, in, uh, in Greek. It actually means going your own way. So the idea is, that you have your own desires, you, you're enticed by your own desires, the idea is that you have custom-designed lusts. Now, now we, we know this if we, if we think about this, right? I mean, you know, you've maybe been driving to work and um, you get stopped. I don't, I don't know what you get stopped by. Uh, you know, get stopped by a train, let's say that, okay? And you, you, know, you look over and you're like, oh man, I'm gonna be late, I gotta get there, I'm gonna be late for this meeting. And you look over and the person next to you 
um, you know, she's putting on her makeup. And she is loving the fact that she's got an extra few minutes to get that done. And you're both experiencing the exact same, you know, circumstance, but one of you is responding with anxiety, and the other one is like, this is awesome. I got a little more time to get the face right. Um, you, you, you have been with people where something happens and one person explodes and the rest of you are like, wow, I, I mean, I'm disappointed, but it's not explosion worthy. That's because we have custom designed lusts. There are things that tempt you that may not tempt the person next to you in the same way. Husbands and wives see this, don't they? Yeah. So confessing those specifically, looking at your own heart and seeing the war that is in there that may not be exactly the same with your spouse or with your kids or with a friend or with a coworker, it's, it's good for you to help you forsake them, to look at that. Yes, you are prideful, but what does that look like specifically in your life? You know, not everybody lives for reputation. For some people, for some of us, that's a, that's a big temptation. But there are people who could care less about their reputation. It's not that big of a deal. They don't live for what other people think about them. And so you, if that's your battle, recognizing that and confessing that specifically is a step of growth in your life. What does it look like specifically in your life? So it's better to be specific in general. Secondly, it's better to acknowledge sin to God than to others. Um, so this same word is used in Psalm 32, 5, where it says, and we're going to get to Psalm 32 in this series as well, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. This is David speaking. So David acknowledges his sin, refuses to hide it anymore. That's, that's confession. And, and, and you notice in Psalm 32, 5, the to God aspect of David's confession. Solomon is not saying that we shouldn't confess our sin to others. Other passages make that aspect clear. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Or Matthew 5, 23 and 24, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. But our primary confession is always to God. That's what David shows us in Psalm 51. We'll see that here in a few days. So it's better to acknowledge sin to God than others. What does it mean to forsake your sin? Again, Proverbs 28, 13 tells us those who confess and forsake, the, the word there means to abandon, to reject, to leave behind, to neglect. Um, it's, it's, uh, the word is also used to describe someone being released from prison or a free person. Um, that, that's interesting because our sins obviously do bind us. They enslave us in the context of Proverbs chapter 5, which is specifically about um, sexual immorality. Um, Solomon goes on to say, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin, that our sins do bind us. The word forsake is this idea of, of being freed from that. Solomon, in other words, doesn't just say that we need to admit we're sinners, we need to take it to the next step of actually hating our sin, of wanting no part of it.
It's costing me too much. I abandon it. I leave it behind. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Rhetorical question again. Can you think of a time when you confessed your sin and found mercy from others? Those are sweet times, aren't they? Where you've admitted your sin to your spouse. Maybe you've confessed your sins to your kids. Maybe you've done it to a friend. And they willingly forgave you. It doesn't always happen, though. Those are sweet times when it does. It doesn't always happen. But it always happens with God. I, I might not get mercy from you when I confess my sins to you, but I always get it from God. Always. The word for compassion or mercy here um, means tender mercy. A, a variation of the root word means womb. It's the idea of a mother's deep emotion for her child. Israel in the Old Testament was summoned repentance on the grounds of God's father-like compassion for them. Um, so those people that confess and forsake their sin will find mercy with God. Those are the ones that he blesses. Those are the ones that enjoy an intimacy with God that, that many Christians never have. So when, when we, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of pulling apart this verse here, Proverbs 28, 13. What are examples of God's mercy and compassion in our lives then? If, if, if he gives that to those who confess and forsake, what are examples of that? Well, Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger, for one, in Psalm 86, 15. That's an example of God's mercy or compassion to us. The fact that our sins are forgiven is an example of God's mercy or compassion. Being born again, believing the gospel. Um, Ephesians 2.4 tells us that he has love for us. It's not as if God is this stern judge who forgave our sins, which he is a judge. We're under his wrath, a scripture tells us. But then he, he turns around and invites us into his family. And it's completely undeserved. I mean, that's the gospel. It's, it's not just that our sins are forgiven, that, that, that we get Christ's righteousness, but, but also that we're adopted into his family. How amazing is that? He takes off his judge's robes and says, hey, having a family barbecue, want you there. That's incredible. That's his mercy and compassion, his love for us. This truth about repentance, about confession, is so important that you cannot become a Christian unless you understand it. After salvation, this truth is so important that you cannot grow without understanding it. Can you say that the attitude of the psalmist characterizes you? Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David Paulson, in his book, Good and Angry, which is an excellent book on anger, um, has an example. And I, I want to read this to you. It's a, about a page and a half. Um, but I think this will be helpful in understanding what we mean by confession, and then we'll, then we'll be done here. So he's talking about Trisha and Ryan. This is a, a, you know, fake names for a couple that had a, they're having some issues. He says, once again, they're in the middle of a conflict. It's a lot like their last fight over dinner plans. This time, Ryan forgets that they had made plans to visit Trisha's family this weekend. He double books himself, goes to the beach with his buddies, forgets his cell phone charger, and is once again unreachable. 
When he finally connects with Trisha the next day, she is mad. His string of lame excuses reveals that he doesn't treat what happened seriously and is mainly concerned with being defensive. Trisha reams him out, recounting his present and past faults in videographic detail. She charges him with a variety of malicious motives. This latest crime against humanity is only one of a string of perpetual iniquities. Global accusation is a typical pattern in angry people. You always or you never. Ryan gets increasingly hostile and entrenches in a defensive position. Trisha calls in the heavy artillery. She vents expletives, calls Ryan names, pronounces curses. She trumpets her own righteousness. I would never do that. When I promise to do something for you, I do it. I make an effort with your family. Then she stomps out, leaving Ryan to squirm in his guilt and silent wrath. Both of them kill off any present tense relationship. Later, however, Trisha feels bad for getting so riled up. She goes back to Ryan and says, I'm sorry for what I said. I didn't mean it. I was overtired and upset. That's okay, he answers. They kiss and make up. End of incident? No, that's not forgiveness, either sought or given. Nothing has been confessed. Nothing has been forgiven. And this is the way too many people in our churches handle situations. Everything I said about Trisha and Ryan, maybe that you're saying, yeah, that, that was our last argument. And that is exactly how we handled it. We just said, hey, I'm sorry, I was overtired, I got emotional, and then he says, hey, no problem, and then that's the end of it. That's not, that's not how things are handled. He goes on to say this, she did mean what she said, though she now regrets it and wants to make up, and it's not okay, though now he also wants to let it go and patch things up. They're both making excuses. They have not created any true substantial peace. Their making up is only a truce, a temporary cessation of hostilities that might break out again at any moment. True forgiveness, both sought and given, looks wrong in the eye. It makes no excuses, but it does not hold the offense against you. It lets you go when it could hang on. It covers over when it could hold it over you. True forgiveness looks more like this. And here's what we're getting to. Trisha's confession. What I said was wrong. I am so sorry for my hurtful words. I exaggerated in order to hurt you. I acted like I'm never wrong. Please forgive me. See how specific that is? And it ends with the words, please forgive me. Ryan says, I forgive you. Thank you. And I was wrong first. Please forgive me for not following through on what I said I'd do. I'm sorry for hurting you by thinking first of myself and what I wanted to do and then making it worse with my excuses. Trisha. I do forgive you, thanks. They kiss because they have made up. They've been honest. They've dealt with what really happened. They've made actual peace where there was actual war. That's what confession should look like in a, in a real life situation. I hope for all of us that we get better at specific confession, that we get better at owning our sin, that we get better at repentance. We'll talk more about this tomorrow.